When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark with your weekly dose of politics. That, to me, is a really interesting kind of subversion of reasoning that might actually be kind of convincing. And culture. These days I don't think that many Labour MPs or many MPs at all would be that interested in Ruskin, apart from uh, Chris Smith. And this week we hear from the BBC's Mark Urban, who, as well as a broadcaster, is a historian with a new book, The Skripal Files, which examines the life of Sergei Skripal, who was poisoned in Salisbury. How much should we allow an outrage like this to change Britain's relations with Russia? The more you say Putin personally ordered this, the harder you make it to engage fruitfully diplomatically with Russia at the, at the interstate level. More on that later, but first I'm here in the studio with Samir Rahim, who's Prospects Culture Editor, and Alex Dean, our politics guru. First, Alex, over to you. You've been uh, looking at the political parties and whipping this week, especially the Tories, some of the novel tricks they've got to try and keep their boys and girls in line. So I was in Birmingham earlier in the week and watching Brandon Lewis's speech uh, to a Conservative conference, and he's chairman of the Conservative Party. Uh, and a few vice chairs were name dropped uh, and I kind of did a bit of googling and counting up and remembered that in a reshuffle quite recently there were some vice chairs of the Conservative Party appointed and I think it's nine vice chairs and then a deputy <laughs> chair which sounds like a vice chair but is actually something different and then the chairman um, and, I was and these just, aren't paid these characters they're not imagine. paid um, basically there are legal limits ever since uh, this uh, complicated name it's something about uh, ministers uh, and parliament act in 1975 can't remember the exact title um that limits how many paid ministers in the cabinet and further down you can appoint um and that's for precisely the kind of reason of trying to constrain the size of the payroll vote so the government can't just force every mp in the party to be in such position that they have to vote with the government or resign um and i was just thinking looking at brandon lewis speaking about trickery pulled by governments uh, to try and informally increase the number of MPs that in practice have to vote with the government or resign their post. And I think over checkers, there were two vice chairs of the Conservative Party who resigned over checkers uh, and they were vice chairs. So that proves that these positions are, you know, the kind of post where it's a resigning matter if you're going to vote against the government. Because there's already bag carriers, aren't there? The, the so-called PPS. So they're not paid either. So PPS stands for Parliamentary Private Secretary. That's that's a whole nother level of uh, of government trickery with so many PPSs um, who, in practice, the ministerial code says they have to vote with the government. Um, 
so but there's there's less constraints on how many you can appoint um all of this is in the government's bag of tricks and kind of arsenal when it comes to squeaking tight votes through never has that been more important than now with a wafer thin majority and the brexit crunch alex do you think that um government might be hoisting themselves on their own petard in a way because although they've given out these incredibly important roles i'm sure to these um MPs we've never heard of. Um, when these MPs we've never heard of resign, uh, it becomes a news story. So um, then it becomes they seem much more important than they actually are. You know, that, to me, is a really interesting kind of subversion of reasoning that might actually uh, be kind of convincing. I guess because the government is in a position now where previously it would have had one cabinet minister and a couple of junior ministers to contend with with resigning. But now it's playing a high stakes game, isn't it? Because with an extra 50 kind of made up jobs, um, that that's an extra 50 people who can resign. And then the headline the next day goes from one minister resigning to 20 ministers resigning. And that leaves the government looking not so good. Yeah, um, Tory chair resigns over Brexit sounds pretty impressive and so it? does tory vice chair but there's nine of them <laughs> right. so in a sense it's and but maybe you have to call them something really good to get people to do this unpaid yeah. job i don't know um but yeah i guess that the way i describe it is a, is a high stakes game isn't it because more of these people have to resign uh in le- if they want to go against the government so that means they're more likely to go uh, go with the government but then the flip side to that is if they do go against the government the consequences and the headlines aren't so good the next day um jeremy corbyn seemed to give up more or less on the idea of discipline in parliament some time ago i mean there's been all kinds of things where his whole front bench has resigned or turned against him or voted no confidence um but put that together with the uh possibly rather neurotic um uh, troop management on the tory side and bits of chaos on the labor side and a bit of mixed messages from Europe now about, oh, maybe there'll be a deal after all. Any general feeling about whether it's looking like Theresa May is going to squeak through or not in terms of parliamentary vote? I mean, I've got a stake in, um, in you know, a journalistic stake in playing up the chaos. But actually, I think I wouldn't be surprised if a deal did squeak through. I wonder how many diehards there are who are really willing to jeopardise the Brexit project altogether. Definitely a few. Um, I, I wouldn't, you know, say so there's going to be no rebellion. And then on the other side, you've got the Tory Remainers, but we've already seen that they kind of fold mm. when it comes to the the real heat of the moment. And there was that whole meaningful vote, meaningful vote thing with Grieve, um, and they back down. And on the Labour side, are you seeing a kind of not the Kate Hoeys, but more than the kind of Kate Hoeys and Frank Fields who always vote in favour of Brexit? Are you thinking there might be a wider crumbling of people who just want it to go away and might vote for it? Yeah, I, I mean, I think an overwhelming majority of Labour MPs are going to try and vote against the government, are going to vote against the government to try and bring it down uh, and usher in the opportunity for a general election. But I don't know if it's going to be, you know, it needs to be almost all of them, if mm. not all of them, given uh, how many how many Tory MPs do we really think are going to um you know, risk. I mean, the government will tell Remainers that if they vote against, there's a risk of no deal. And they'll tell the Brexiteers that if they vote against, there's a risk of no Brexit altogether, both of which are, you know, arguably true. Um, How many people are willing to play with fire to the extent that they're going to vote against their own government? So possibly a case of the the, the centre, as it were, the centre of the Conservative Party holding there. But Samir, you've been looking at a very different world this week where... um, the centre might not be holding, I think. 
Yes. In 1906, Labour and Liberal MPs had just arrived in Parliament were asked who their um, hero was. Uh, and you might be interested in the answer. It wasn't Karl Marx and it wasn't John Wesley. It was John Ruskin, the art critic and uh, social reformer, and particularly his book Unto This Last, which was incredibly influential, um, talking about how capitalism turned people into machines and um, there needed to be um, reform of it and people needed to be accounted for their sort of emotional and sort of personal individuality. It was also inspired uh, Gandhi, in fact, as well, and he translated it into Gujarati, um, inspired his uh, movement for independence. Um, these days, I don't think that many Labour MPs or many MPs at all would be that interested in Ruskin, apart from uh, Chris Smith, uh, Baron Smith of Finsbury, the former culture secretary uh, in, under New Labour, uh, gave, a, gave a lecture a couple of weeks ago talking about what Ruskin meant to him, but also about what happened 20 years ago when he campaigned from within the government to get museums, free entrance to museums. And he said that although Tony Blair and Gordon Brown now go around saying this was one of their proudest achievements, at the time they were both opposed to it um, <laughs> for different reasons. Um, Gordon Brown thought it was too expensive and Tony Blair just wasn't that interested in it. And Smith was quite interesting. He articulated what I think is a rather unfashionable view at the moment. So he's coming at it from the left, talking about this Ruskinian heritage. And he's saying that the museums were incredibly important to be free um, because they are repositories of a kind of valuable high culture that it's necessary for the people in power to share this this knowledge with um, with everyone. At the time, he said the museum bosses were totally against this. Their argument was, if people aren't paying for it, then they won't value it. So you might say that's a classic sort of more conservative view of the way of looking at the arts. So you have these two oppositions. But, but nowadays, it seems like um, many people on the left, and in the Labour Party perhaps, would be uncomfortable with this rather patrician idea of... Uh, culture being intrinsically important and needing to be sort of educating or indeed civilising was the word he uses, the masses. So Jeremy Corbyn, for example, his main museum's policy seems to be uh, returning the Elgin marbles back to Greece. Um, others on the left um, see museums as repositories of sort of the imperial legacy and are more likely to want to sort of go into the museum to tear down a statue, if you will, than, uh, than they are to go and stand in appreciated wonder. So I was wondering whether a slightly patronising idea, perhaps, of the civilising mission mm. uh, that museums are supposed to have, that the BBC is meant to have in its Rethian vision, is sort of crumbling because there's no one really there to defend it on left or right. Alex, do you see that? Can you see that as we've had this political polarisation setting in now for the last two or three years, that it could start to show itself in these kind of cultural domains as well? I think what we've just heard is the most amazingly prospecty argument of all time, which is the shape of the deep shape of British politics tracked through attitudes towards museum admissions, <laughs> which, yeah, uh, which is exactly the kind of thing I'm into. Um, yes, basically, yes. But I wondered, Samir, what you think about 
there have been some initiatives by the V&A and stuff to open up a bit, haven't there? Yeah, this lecture was at the V&A um, and it was in their lovely uh, lecture hall. Part of the sort of democratising process of museums, um, which I'm not against at all, actually, I think it, it can be quite in- it can be quite interesting debates around it, has been the V&A have, have done more different kinds of exhibitions. So probably starting off with the David Bowie one, which was a huge success. Uh, a few years ago, and now they've got uh, something about video games, um, which we're shortly going to be covering um, in Prospect because it's, it's it's an interesting subject. The idea that museums shouldn't just be about um, 19th century high culture is true. It's interesting. It's it's a good it's a good point. Um, but I do think that in a way to even have the argument in the first place. You need to know what the Elgin marbles are and why they're significant um, to even try and debate whether objects um, should be on loan or returned to their places of origin. You need to somehow have that level of um, understanding and respect for it as an institution um, before you can make the arguments against it. All respect for our culture and politics institutions here, Samir and Alex. And we'll go over now to Jay Elwes for this week's interview, which is with Mark Urban, focusing on his new book, The Skripal Files. Mark, thank you for joining us on the Prospect Podcast. In the book, you document uh, in fine detail the life and times of Sergei Skripal, who was poisoned in Salisbury, so memorably along with his daughter, Yulia. Um, a lot of people will have heard of uh, the KGB and, and other institutions like it. Not so many people will be familiar with the GRU, and it was the GRU that Sergei Skripal belonged to. Um, just tell us a little bit about what that organisation is. Uh, well, it's the, uh, the the Russian acronym for uh, an organisation called the Main Intelligence Directorate, and it's a directorate of the general staff, and and uh, it has essentially uh, existed in that form with one or two little bits of rebranding and reorganisation uh, uh, for many many years, uh, something approaching uh, eighty years. So it's a part of the armed forces and uh, it it, it has always been informed by a concept of intelligence or reconnaissance, the word being essentially the same in Russian, razvedke, which uh, combines everything from the guy crawling forward on his belly uh, trying to see, you know, whether the Afghan rebels are over the next ridge to someone outside Moscow in an underground bunker looking at displays from a spy satellite, uh, to someone in that infamous unit uh, uh, that was doing the hacking on the US election, to someone uh, undercover in an embassy uh, trying to gather strategic intelligence by recruiting agents in the same way that the former KGB, now uh, SVR as it's called, the new uh, Civilian Foreign Intelligence Service uh, post-Cold War, would be doing as well. The GRU also has its own uh, elite military units, the the Spetsnaz that people may have heard of, Uh, the special designation uh, troops who are essentially troops for uh, small unit actions and uh, 
what the Americans call paramilitary stuff, stuff on the edges of politics and, and uh, subversion and all the rest of it. So it's a big organisation with a broad mission and broad capabilities. And that Spetsnaz was the route that Sergei Skripal took. He, uh, he was in the airborne forces and he went to something called the Reconnaissance Diversionary Company uh, of an airborne division. And although that is an elite formation and it's right on the edge of Spetsnaz, it's not quite... Uh, 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 he he, and he did a, a covert mission in Afghanistan, which was very much the kind of thing they did, and probably mm. with GRU officers. Mm. This was in late 1978, early 1979. Yes, and, and you describe that in the book, and it sounds like a quite dark operation. It is a dark operation, or was. I mean, certainly the way he described it, and of course. When one uh, naturally being told that he, with a group of other people, had gone in covertly to eliminate Afghan Air Force officers who they thought were were basically working for the CIA uh, because they'd had American training, that seemed to be the assumption. Uh, you do realise that, gosh, uh, you know, Sergei Skripal was involved in, in some pretty dark deeds uh, and and also I think one realises that back at that time in the late 70s he was totally committed uh, to the Soviet system he was a great believer in it and as a result of doing that mission in Afghanistan he uh, was invited to join the GRU uh, and then went off to their uh, special uh, training academy which is called the Military Diplomatic Academy in Moscow where, where you do a whole four year course sort of degree course in how to be a a Russian military spook. So how high up did he get then in the GRU? Sergei had the rank of colonel, full colonel in the GRU, which is actually just their more senior operative rank when you see it in embassies and things. It's the sort of level that a lot of their uh, experienced operatives have. Uh, but when he went back to Moscow in the uh, September of 1996, he went to head the the GRU's personnel department and uh, he was actually expecting to be promoted to major general um, for various reasons that didn't happen. I think it still rankles with him that he wasn't promoted to major general. Um, but anyway, as head of personnel, he sat on what was called the first commission, which was in an administrative sense, the board running the uh, administrative side of the GRU uh, and obviously chaired by the head of the whole organisation and and almost everyone else on it was a general. So he really was uh, uh, privy to, certainly in organisational terms, the inner secrets of the organisation. So like you say in the book, he didn't make general, but even so... He was st- he and his wife. They were um, because of their association with this really important organisation. They were given a very nice flat. Uh, they were able to shop in places that were only open to specific higher ranks, and that gave them access to Western luxuries that lots of other people uh, couldn't get their hands on. There was also the promise of foreign travel. So, I mean, in he got really close to the to the top end. So that leaves the question of why he decides to uh, turn on this and offer his services to MI6. Well, you're right. Clearly, as a senior member of the GRU uh, in the 1980s uh, and going through into the 90s, he was uh, given all sorts of uh, privileges. But of course, once the Soviet Union collapsed, the status of the GRU, the, 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 the loss of the Soviet empire, if you want to call it that, And then all of the things that followed, the political instability, high inflation, 
they very much diminished his his status and his ability crudely to earn money and look after his wider family he he had to look after a lot of people and and if you if you go to the mid 90s the rate of inflation was such that uh, all sorts of people in russian government jobs uh, were starting to do uh, well private work uh, loosely put some of them might be driving a an informal taxi at night in moscow some of them might be doing building work uh, uh, and of course, for someone in the GRU, the temptation was there to monetize what they were doing in other ways, very dangerous for themselves. And then you bring in in the book the uh, the charming uh, British businessman who's doing some work overseas in Spain, uh, who becomes acquainted with Sergei Skripal, and who gradually works his way around in a sort of courtship style to offering an opportunity to Skripal to. Uh, give up some secrets exactly uh this is this is a man who we call richard bagnall in the book it's a pseudonym uh essentially he was uh, an mi6 officer who was working in, in an organization called p5 operations which is uh, p5 being the the russian production section mm. of of mi6 this guy effectively uh seduced sergey into betraying his country by a, a rather clever cultivation in which Sergei himself was often not sure what was going on. So, for example, Bagnall uh, took Sergei and his family out to a flamenco club. He brought them presents, things like that. And Sergei was quite unsure about this because there were aspects of, of Bagnall's approach and demeanour which suggested to him he was indeed a spook. Uh, and there were other aspects like this getting involved with his family, which he couldn't understand because everything they'd learned at the Military Diplomatic Academy in Moscow suggested that in a classic cultivation, someone working for the CIA or MI6 or uh, would not uh, get really involved with your family because, of course, your kids might tell their friends in the Russian compound that there was this nice British man who kept buying presents and taking them places. And so right up until the pitch, which took place in El Retiro, which is a park in Madrid, in July of 1996, uh, Sergei was kind of oscillating between a belief he was indeed being cultivated, which of course part of him knew he was open to that, and a belief that this man was what he seemed to be, which was a businessman looking for opportunities in in post-communist Russia. So, okay, so that takes us up to late 90s, early 2000s, where Sergei has met and effectively been recruited by this MI6 guy. And uh, he starts to send or provide bits of information, sometimes written in secret ink in the in, inside books that he sends to Richard, you know, a gift from your old friend and so forth. Um, but how useful... Uh, or valuable an agent do you think Sergei was? I think, um, it, well, I think you can see it in phases, really. Uh, so um, initially, he, he, he was an extraordinary achievement for MI6. They had run this legendary uh, agent, Oleg Penkovsky, along with the Americans in the late 50s. Uh, he'd been arrested and executed. And Following that, uh, the early 60s, they hadn't had anyone, so one understands, in place in the GRU during all of those intervening decades, right up until the recruitment of Sergei Skripal. I mean, given the priorities of, 
of, of MI6 at the time, which, you know, we're talking about the mid to late 90s, where everybody really thought the Cold War was over. Uh, and the, the game, if you like, was confined largely to the professionals. His value was in working out the professionals on the GRU side. So, of course, because he was the personnel officer, he knew everything about the comings and goings from different uh, residenturas uh, or stations that the GRU had in embassies around the world. I think what happened then was, obviously, he then left the GRU in in September uh, 1999, which that that must have decreased his value, Uh, uh, although he was still able to provide lots of gossip and, and intel about who was going where in terms of posting. Um, it must have decreased his value. And then, of course, the key event, in a sense, is 9-11, where uh, it's not that what he could provide suddenly became less valuable. It's that the customers, so-called, in Whitehall for, for intelligence, suddenly became a whole lot less interested because, of course, the overwhelming focus was counterterrorism, finding and hunting al-Qaeda, all that kind of thing. And at that point, uh, you know... He, he, his intelligence became of less interest. And it couldn't last forever. He got caught. And you describe in quite a nasty episode how he's uh, brutally arrested and how he's tied up with his own coat and so forth and taken off uh, a, a trial with an inevitable outcome. And he, he ends up in a, in a really nasty-sounding prison camp in the middle of nowhere. Um, who do you think sold him out? The uh, the view of the of the agencies, i.e., uh, MI6, CIA, and the CNI, which is Spanish intelligence, is that uh, one of the people who'd been working at CNI headquarters, called Roberto Flores, sold them out. Uh, and when I say them, I mean Sergey and another GRU officer who was recruited in Madrid at about the same time and was a CNI asset. Now, he was arrested before Sergey early in 2004, and he was murdered uh, while he was in detention. Uh, Sergey was then arrested uh, uh, and, you know, as you've described, then went through the, the Russian criminal justice system. And Flores himself has maintained uh, since his release, uh, because the Skripal matter didn't come up at his trial, that he did not sell out Sergei Skripal. So in in the interest of fairness, uh, we should say that that's what he says. Has it changed the way that you look at the subject area in which you specialise, security, intelligence, diplomacy and so forth? And I ask you that because Sergei did 13 years uh, in uh, a Russian jail um, and then in 2010 he came to Britain in a spy swap um, and he settled in Salisbury. And you you came to know him because you were speaking to him about his life uh, before he was poisoned. Um, I mean, it's it it's it's all very close, isn't it? Um, have you had any cause for self examination? That's an interesting question. Um, intellectually, one sort of knows that people sometimes get killed or, or targeted for assassination because of their involvement in this world. But you do just trundle along reporting it and and you forget that sometimes. And I remember a conversation uh, I was having with a 
a former senior intelligence officer from a, a European intelligence service when I was doing research for this. And this was post-poisoning. And I, I was expressing one or two of the, the counter theories uh, about, you know, how it might have been a criminal matter or how, it, you know, mm. I was trying to get him to explore with me some of the counter theories. And he said to me, why are you surprised that the GRU kills people? You know, believe me, they kill people. Uh, and that's how the organization works. That's how it ensures its own security. I maintained a pretty open mind about about the counter theories. And then, of course, I think like many people, the single most incriminating thing was the Russian TV appearance by uh, Petrov and Bashirov, so-called, which I think was so utterly bizarre, uh, given the context of information warfare that had been get raging in the months before it, that it it seemed to convince many people the world over, including lots of Russians who were commenting on social media, that these guys were absolutely... Uh, spooks or heavies mm. uh, uh, and that their story was so patently incredible about being tourists as is very clear in your book the the russian security state and security establishment is enormous and enormously powerful and putin himself is a product of it but on the other hand it has conspired to produce this extraordinarily haphazard and ill-judged and in some ways botched assassination attempt of a of a pensioner in Salisbury where this stuff was smeared on the door handle and who knows who who could have turned up to deliver a package or check the gas meter or whatever any number of people could have become hit by this horrible stuff as indeed they were Dawn Sturgis found the bottle and alas she died it's terribly sad but there is isn't there this strange dissonance between the enormity of the institutions and the ridiculousness of the event that they created. Well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? I suppose that speaks to the uh, uh, dissonance between these organisations as large collectives and the individuals who work for them, uh, who maybe suffer because they've betrayed them, and who get caught up in 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 in, in a drama like this. Uh, you know, there's always been, I suppose, an element of, of the banality or humdrum uh, about um, espionage on a personal level. Uh, you know, the people who keep one-time pads under the floorboard sort of thing and listen to coded transmissions or while living an apparently normal and, and utterly pooterish sort of existence. And, and, and I think in this case also, uh, it is quite hard to reconcile. And, and, and now, of course, we know a little bit more about those Russian suspects. That adds another curious level to it, that these people, you know, army officers uh, working in the GRU, apparently in a sort of normal way, you know, for example, in the special forces, uh, then go into this much darker side of life and get caught up in all this. Um, I mean, I think if you if you buy the mainstream narrative, and, and I think increasingly because of the exposure of these two suspects, uh, an awful lot of people do, uh, then I think the motive is clear. It's to frighten people who might be tempted to spy for the West, to send a message. The uh, use of a very specific poison Novichok uh, agent is very relevant in that context as it was using polonium to kill Alexander Litvinenko in 2006. What, because of the, the message it sends? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, why didn't they just walk up to, uh, walk up to him and shoot him? Well, 
uh, firstly, using a uh, a poison that would be absorbed through the skin gave them several hours in which to escape. I mean, I think that's quite a key factor. But the other thing is it would appear that the poison was part of the message. Uh, and, and I think it's reasonable to assume also that the GRU would have understood that uh, Petrov and Bashirov would be photographed on CCTV. Uh, they knew they were going through the airport, through mainline stations, things like that, where, you know, there's an awful lot of this type of equipment in place. And I think they would have assumed that, of course, they would be captured. Uh, they, they don't seem to be heavily disguised, although you see a baseball cap or whatever in in one or two of the images that were released by the police. And therefore, that I think we, we, we can deduce from, from the evidence as it's accumulated that they were um, reconciled uh, and maybe sanguine about the idea that this would be discovered as a Russian government act and that that was all part of the signalling they wanted to do. I, I think what would, would be completely unintended consequences for them would be to have the organisation whose uh, uh, long arm and severity they wanted to, you know, th- th- that was the message they wanted to send, that the GRU never forgave uh, and could get you wherever you were, and instead uh, have an outcome in which, you know, the the, the tragic death of Dawn, uh, Dawn Sturgis aside, an awful lot of people, particularly in Russia, where they really don't want this to happen, are now laughing at the GRU. So I suppose the million-dollar question is how much Putin knows or directs this stuff yeah i mean you do get uh diverging opinions uh, among the professionals about this um some people when i was talking to them for the book uh tried to imply that there was a sort of general license to kill uh, with regards traitors that if the svr or the gru or the fsb got the opportunity to take out somebody uh that that they would do so uh, and that it was generally understood that that was permitted uh, others were not so sure about that and that particularly people in the uk or indeed even more sensitively the us that this would require authorization at the highest level because you know we think things went badly for for petrov and bashirov in the sense of their images being so clearly captured and that kind of thing but what if they'd actually been caught without diplomatic immunity um you know so they were ta- they were taking big risks and the risks of discovery were there and so a lot of people uh, in the intelligence world would say no 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 this would have to be signed off but you know I wonder how far people in MI6 or the CIA really want to get to the heart of that matter. Did Putin or one of his other very senior officials authorise this? Because, uh, firstly, it's an incredibly hard thing to know in intelligence terms, you know, to have that intercepted email, uh, you know, the submission from the GRU for the operation, you know, going to the president or someone who was in the room when he just nodded and said, do it, you know, that kind of thing. Incredibly hard intelligence to gather. And we know, for example, that the efforts that went on for years after the Litvinenko uh, incident uh, never produced a clear bit of intelligence that Putin had ordered that attack. A lot of people, particularly in organisations like MI6, understand the value of maintaining open channels, liaison channels, 
with the Russian intelligence services and, of course, are sensitive also to the wider diplomatic relationship. The more you say Putin personally ordered this, the harder you make it to engage fruitfully diplomatically with Russia at the, at, at, at the interstate level. So perhaps a little bit of ambiguity about that is both inevitable, given the toughness of actually getting intelligence that would tell you that, and desirable in the sense of preventing the the relationship between the UK and Russia really moving into sort of catastrophic dead-end territory. Mark Urban, thank you very much indeed. That was Jay Elwes there, talking to Mark Urban. Uh, and for more on security, diplomacy and the place of Russia on the world stage, visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Samir Rahim and Alex Dean here in the studio. And our October issue of Prospect is out in the shops. Go and buy a copy. The cover story is all about Twitter. A site so beloved of many pro-Russian trolls, what's it been doing to politics both here and abroad? Find out with the magazine. Thanks so much for listening and please do go to iTunes where you can rate and review this podcast which really helps other listeners to find us. The producer was Jay Elwes and be sure to join us again next week for the Prospect Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.